Well, it's good to see you again after a five-week absence. Thank you. Thank you for that. I know this is Jesus' day, not mine, but, but, but thank you. I want to thank you for your prayers, and I want to thank you for your uh, visits and phone calls and emails and many, many cards that I received from so many of you following my surgery on February the 26th. And I must tell you, I've never been in the hospital or never had surgery in my life, so it's been quite humbling to be on the other side of the bed. Uh, as many times as I've visited so many of you in the hospital room, uh, to be in a hospital bed for four days is a, is a whole totally different experience. But I do thank you for your, your love and your uh, prayers and interest. Uh, a number of you brought food and graced our home with flowers, and so uh, we have felt so loved and so cared for. The only downside to my recovery is that I have been told by my surgeon that for the next year, I am forbidden to do any housework. <laughs> I, I can't push a vacuum cleaner, can't use a dust rag, can't load or unload the dishwasher or make up the bed, no yard work. But amazingly, the surgeon said that I could play all the tennis I wanted to once I got healthy. Somehow, my wife doesn't seem to be too believing of that, but I could have sworn that's what he said to me when I made my last visit to the surgeon. And speaking of my, my dear wife, boy, she has been my nurse uh, in these last five weeks, so... She's the real one that, that deserves the applause. She has taken care of me. When you can't even get out of a chair out of the bed by yourself for two weeks, it's, it's, it's pretty bad. So I'm grateful for, for her continuing care. Well, I want to invite you to join me as we read out of John's Gospel this morning. We're going to read the resurrection story, and we're actually going to, <clears throat> to begin in chapter 19, because Jesus has died on a Friday, and Joseph of Arimathea, beginning in verse 38, Joseph of Arimathea, who's a wealthy man and also a me member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish council, has asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. And he, along with Nicodemus, whom we meet in John chapter 3, Nicodemus is the one who comes to Jesus by night, and they are both secret followers of Jesus. They ask for the body of Jesus from Pilate, and we read in verse 41 that at the place where Jesus was crucified, there, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one has, had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. And if you go to Israel today, there are two places where it is said it was the tomb of Jesus. One is at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre there in Jerusalem, and then outside the city gates, there is a place called the Garden Tomb. 
And we went there in 2014, and it gives you a real sense of what John is describing in this text. And then in chapter 20, verse 1, early on the first day of the week. Now, the Jewish Sabbath runs from sundown Friday to sundown on Saturday. It's the first day of the week. It's Sunday while it was still dark. You know, John's gospel is different from the other three gospels because Matthew, Mark, and Luke say that the resurrection took place at dawn and that the early, early disciples went there when the light uh, first shone from the sun. But according to John's gospel, Mary is going somewhere probably between 3 and 6 a.m. It's still dark, according to John's gospel. So we see that Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Now this other disciple is unidentified. We don't know who this other disciple is. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. And then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. And together let us say, thanks be to God. Well, I've had a couple of weeks to think about this sermon. And one of the things that has struck me is that there's a lot of similarities between what happens on Christmas Eve and a lot of similarities between what happens on Easter. Now, there's some obvious differences, but the one commonality, at least from John's Gospel, is that both Christmas, the birth of Jesus, and Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, both of them take place at night. And yet they are two very different kinds of nights. Now, of course, we get most of our information about Jesus' birth from Luke and Matthew's Gospels. In Luke's Gospel, we read the story of Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem because of the census. Mary's nine months pregnant. She begins to have the, the labor pains, and she's able to find some type of structure, whether it's an inn or a stable. Some have surmised it might have been a cave in which Jesus was born. And we know the shepherds are out in the fields at night, and suddenly the angels appear, and through the angels' presence, God's glory shines out in the countryside 
temporarily. We have some light by way of God's glory. And then we read in Matthew's gospel that the wise men at night are following the light of a star that leads them to worship the Christ child. So in the birth stories of Jesus, Matthew and Luke, we have a lot of darkness. And we have some intermittent, temporary light when Jesus is finally born. So what do we do in the darkest time of the year when we celebrate Christmas? We light lights. We light, we light our Christmas tree lights. We light our Christmas tree light here in the sanctuary. We light the Scots lights in the sanctuary. We have an Advent wreath and we light the lights on that candle. And we come to Christmas Eve service at 5 and 7 o'clock here at Oakmont. And at 5 o'clock, this room is completely filled in the bottom level and in the balcony. And at 7 o'clock, it's filled pretty much on the main level. And we conclude both of those services by taking a little candle and lighting it, and we all sing together, Silent Night, Holy Night. And that's what we do to bring light into our darkness. That's what we do to celebrate the birth of a baby here in our sanctuary. But the light of Christmas is only a temporary light. It's not a permanent light. But then we get to John's Gospel, chapter 20. And even in chapter 19, there's not the same kind of celebration going on in John's gospel about Easter as there is in Matthew and Luke's gospel about the birth of Jesus. See, in John's gospel, we encounter a lot of suffering and pain, don't we? We encounter a lot of torture and death. We don't hear the cry of a baby. We hear the cry of a grown man as seven-inch spikes are impaled into his wrist as he's lifted up to that cross. And a great deal of that story happens in darkness or it happens at night. But then we get to chapter 20 of of, uh, John, and Mary has come to the grave, the text says, early in the morning. It's still dark. It's somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. The text doesn't tell us how Mary was able to see in the dark of the night how to get to the tomb. Did she have a little light that she lighted? Did she light a torch and make her way to the graveside of Jesus? Did she by chance uh, have a moon-filled night and the light of the moon showed the way for her to get to the grave? Maybe Mary used her flashlight app on her cell phone. What do you think? to show the way to that tomb. And then Mary gets to the tomb and the stone's been rolled away. Now you know back in that day they had these stones and these little tracks that they would roll in front of the entrances to the tombs. And the reason they did that was twofold. Number one, they wanted to keep animals from going into the graves and desecrating the body of the dead. And the second reason they put the stone over the, um, over the grave, the entry, was because many people in that day would rob graves. It was very common for people to come along and rob a grave. So Mary comes to the grave and the stone is open and she assumes that the body of Jesus has been stolen. 
Mary is not thinking, and later on when Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, who's not identified for us, neither of those three individuals are thinking at this point back to a statement that Jesus made earlier in John's Gospel in chapter 8, verse 12. Mary's sitting there looking at this empty tomb, and later Peter and that other disciple, they're not even thinking about what Jesus said. In John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Mary's not thinking about that. She just sees the stone rolled away. She assumes the body of Jesus has been stolen. So she runs back, she finds Peter and the other disciple, and they make their way to the graveside, and they look in, and there's that linen, just neatly, neatly arranged, as if this body has just disappeared or evaporated and left the clothing right in place, and that linen shroud that goes around the head was neatly folded up. And the text tells us that Peter goes in, and he looks... Now this is Simon Peter. He goes in and he looks and he does not make the connection between the missing body of Jesus and the resurrected Jesus. The text does not tell us that he believed or understood what was going on. He, he doesn't get it. The other disciple finally goes into the tomb and the text simply says he saw and he believed. And then we get to verse 10. Verse 10 is a strange verse because it simply says, Then the disciples went back to their homes. Whoop de doo. Isn't this exciting? I mean, nobody lights a candle, nobody sings Silent Night, Holy Night, nobody even sings Christ the Lord is risen today. There is no celebration of a resurrected Jesus. They just go back to their homes. It seems that the light has permanently been extinguished out. They don't remember back what Jesus said. I'm the light of the world. They don't make the connection. You know, it's really easy to have the light of your light, of your life, extinguished out. I don't know if you've ever heard of the man before, Elie Wiesel. Anybody ever heard of Elie Wiesel? Anybody? A few of you have heard of Elie Wiesel? Elie Wiesel died in 2016. He was a Romanian Jew who eventually came to the United States. He became a prolific writer and teacher. But Elie Wiesel, when he was 15 years old, he and his family, his mama and his daddy and his siblings were rounded up by the Nazis and they were taken to a Jewish, to a German concentration camp. He was 15 years old. He left that German concentration camp when the Allies liberated Germany a year or two later. And of course, by this time, he was emaciated and in poor health. And only Elie Wiesel and two older sisters survived that time in the Jewish concentration camp. His mom and his dad both were murdered, along with some other siblings. 
Elie Wiesel knows what it's like to have the light of your life snuffed out for what seems to be on a permanent basis. In fact, Elie Wiesel wrote a book in 1960 that is called Night, N-I-G-H-T, that describes his experience in that German concentration camp. Don't hold me to it. I think it's in our church library. It's only about 100 pages, and if you've never read it, you need to read it. When you pick it up and start to read it, you won't be able to put it down. And this is what Elie Wiesel wrote about the first night in that German concentration camp. He says, Never shall I forget that night, that first night in camp, which has turned my life into one long night, seven times cursed and seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the little faces of the children whose body I saw turn into wreaths of smoke beneath a silent blue sky. Never shall I forget those flames which consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget the nocturnal silence which deprived me for all of eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. Never shall I forget these things even if I am condemned to live as long as God himself. Never. Elie Wiesel understands what it's like to have the light of your life snuffed out and all hope taken away. He understands what it's like to go before the empty tomb and the stone's been rolled away and nobody's in there and you don't make the connection between a missing body and the risen Jesus. He understands. But you see the good news of Easter is that ultimately the Easter light does surpass the Christmas Eve light in these two dark events. On Christmas Eve, what do we do? Turn on the Christmas tree in our homes. Turn on the Christmas tree here in the church. Light the Advent candles. Light our own personal candles. But guess what? All of those lights, all of those bulbs, and all of those candles eventually get turned off or snuffed out. But on Easter, whether we look into the tomb like Peter and we see a missing body and we don't make the connection over to the risen Jesus, whether we look in the tomb and for whatever reason, intellectual reasons or whatever, and we just don't make the connection, or whether we're like the other disciple whom Jesus loved who looked into the tomb and the text says he saw and he believed The fact is that the truth of the resurrection is that the light of the world, Jesus, has risen from the dead and his permanent light can never be extinguished. See, we may think that Jesus' light isn't sufficient for us when our own light goes out like Elie Wiesel's. And some of you this morning may feel like your light has gone out of your life. You've had some kind of financial reversal. You've gone through some kind of illness or some kind of surgery. 
you've been dealing with a job disappointment. Maybe you've gone through a time of a family crisis or you've experienced the death of a loved one. Or the fact is, for you, your faith has either been burned out or you're just bummed out on faith. But just because it's night and just because in the moment you don't see the risen Lord, it doesn't mean that He's not there and that His light cannot overcome our personal darkness. I read a story. It was actually heard uh, on video in the last week or so a sermon that was preached at the Washington National Cathedral in Advent of 2016 by the Reverend Randolph Hollerith. I don't know if any of you have ever been to the Washington National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. It is such a beautiful structure and a beautiful place to worship. And in that sermon, the preacher, the Reverend Randolph Hollerith, he tells the story of a friend. The friend got the flu. Friend was at work one day and he came down with the flu and, and realized that he was sick and went to the doctor and had it all confirmed, it's the flu. But you know, he didn't have time. He was too busy at work to be sick with the flu. But the fever and the chills and the pain and the aches finally showed him who was in charge. And so the friend went home, announced to his family that he had the flu, climbed the stairs up to his bedroom, closed the door, and as he was closing the door, announced to his family, leave me alone in my pain and in my misery. Went in his bedroom, closed the blinds, closed the curtains, and in the darkness of his bedroom, went beneath the covers to try to find some relief. After a couple of hours, Randolph Hollerith said his friend heard some footsteps on the stairway. And in a moment, he heard a knock at the door. The friend said that he called out to whoever was at the door, Go away and leave me alone. I don't feel well. And in a moment, he heard the door open up and he looked up and standing beside his bed was his three-year-old son. And the little three-year-old boy said, Daddy, I just came to hurt with you. And the little boy climbed up into bed with his dad, wrapped his arms around his feverish neck. And the father later told Randolph Hollerith, who's preaching this sermon, he said, you know, my son taught me the real meaning of the word Emmanuel, which means God with us. You know, the Quakers, the Society of Friends, the Quakers have an expression that they use when they wish to tell you that they're going to pray for you. They use the expression, I will hold you in the light. I will hold you in the light. I don't know what it is that you're facing today. Maybe on this Easter Sunday of 2018, you feel like the light of your life has been extinguished. 
like Ellie Wiesel, you don't see a lot of hope. Maybe you are in the midst of a financial reversal. Maybe you are in the midst of a major job challenge. Maybe you've gone through a family crisis. Maybe you've experienced the death of a loved one. Maybe for you this morning, faith has burned out or you're bummed out because of it. I don't know what it is that you're facing this morning, but I want to remind you that God holds you in His permanent light. It's not a temporary light such as the ones that we light on Christmas Eve. It's not the light of a candle. It's not the light of the angels standing over the shepherds with the glory of God shining. It's not the light of that temporary star that the wise men followed to worship the Christ child. It's the permanent light of His Son Jesus who came to show forth His light in our darkness. The darkness of our sin, the darkness of our despair, our heartache, suffering, pain, death, or doubt. That light permanently says to you and to me this morning, I just came to hurt with you in your darkness. So you see, Christmas Eve and Easter have a lot of similarities, but there are some differences. Thanks be to God for that second night that we call Easter. Let's pray together. God, it could be that for some who are worshiping in this place this morning, it could be that they're either now or in recent days that there's been a lot of darkness. And we thank you that Jesus is the permanent light of the world. And so, Lord, in whatever places in our hearts that need healing, in whatever place in our heart that needs forgiveness, in whatever places in our heart, God, that need a reason to believe and to trust again, we pray that you would show forth your light to us through your Son, whose resurrection we celebrate this glad day. So hear our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.